The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. All right, happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to Squawkbox with Tamvir Gill, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. The Dow powers higher, notching its longest winning streak since 2017. But the Nasdaq sees its worst day in more than four months. SAP missing second quarter revenue expectations and pairing back its cloud revenue guidance, sending shares in New York tumbling 6%. The CEO, Christian Klein, telling CNBC that cloud remains its key growth driver despite waning demand. Revenue is growing 22% above our peers and operating profit is up 28%, which is very important to show that we are accelerating our cloud growth momentum. It's a similar story with Enforcer shares are tumbling after the Indian IT giant slashes its guidance range in half as inflation pressures and a pullback in discretionary spending weigh on its outlook. Meanwhile, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's party is dealt two by election blows as the Conservatives cling on in Boris Johnson's former seat while Labour records its largest swing since 1997, since Tony Blair. And Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez's nap election gamble comes to a head this weekend as voters head to the polls while the rival populist party looks to be in the head. Lovely to see you all every day. And lovely to see Tanvir especially. Nice to see you. And thank you very much indeed for joining me for a few days on Scorebox as well. Uh, as Miss Cho goes on her, uh, her elongated European tour, I'm no doubt with lots of very flash French um, uh, bags carrying, following behind <laughs> her on a camel train. Uh, lovely to see you. Thank you very much lovely indeed for that. We'll, we'll talk over the next three hours. Right. I want to talk to you a lot about leadership. I want to talk about swallows. And I want to talk about confusion. Because all three are in my head today. Yes, really. Honestly. So, leadership. That, that this tallies with what I'm seeing here as well. Look at this. Look at this. You saw this. You saw it in the headlines as well. The Dow had a massive outperformance yesterday compared with the uh, Nasdaq. One of the biggest outperformances we've seen uh, uh, this year, or in many years, in many ways as well. But the Dow itself was up only five tenths of one percent. But the Nasdaq and the Composite were down two point one percent. What can we read from this as well? Well, we can read from it the fact that actually. Some of the technology companies are under a lot of pressure. That goes without saying. Let's take a look at Netflix and Tesla because they, this is where the point is. This is what dragged the technology stocks down. So down 9.7% on Tesla, Netflix down 8.4%. So that comes to my point about leadership. Are we changing? In fact, if we can have that other board back up again. If we, sorry, Roger, I was going to come back to that in a few moments' time. I just want to talk about leadership. And leadership is without doubt uh, with the technology companies and has been for a long time. And this is the board. Thank you, Roger that I wanted to show. So we started off at this point here, start of the year, everyone's got a flat, no PL, what have you. And then we move up and look at the outperformance of the NASDAQ throughout the entire year, building, 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 until we got to yesterday. That's yesterday. And, and I think this is very interesting. Is there something going on that means the leadership of the market is going away from the magnificent seven, the dangerous eight, the top 10, call them what you like. There's between seven and 10 companies, depending on how you 
to divvy this up, which means that obviously the S&P could potentially need broad leadership elsewhere or other stocks to come to the fore other than just the technology. Is there something going on here or is it literally just two idiosyncratic companies, Tesla and Netflix yesterday? So that, that's the one thing I want to talk about. Uh, and, and the swallows, well, that's the same point really, isn't it? One swallow making a summer. Is the swallow of these two, what they are doing there, is that actually auguring something greater to come for the technology stocks just having a pace back you know do we not want to spend 20 times sales on the best of the best in ai now are we finding that just a little bit too much at this stage of the economic cycle and the other thing i want to talk about is the confusion in the markets as well because the data at the moment i find blisteringly confusing i could make you a very good um case for the rest of this show about why the US consumer and the household spending is in fine fettle and the rebuild of finances is fine. I could equally make you a great case about concerns about consumer credit, about the household finances being under vast amount of pressure, about retail sales this week being a, a big sign of the US consumer pulling back as well. And the data, look look at the data yesterday. I'll give you a great case in point. Initial jobless claims fell by 9,000 yesterday as well. So a terrific figure really, really kind of understating the strength potentially of the US labour market. But there was woe on the Philly Fed, which again is down in contraction territory for the 11th straight month. The existing home sales, again, uh, fell more than expected in June by 3.3% in the month. The index of leading indicators also down 0.7% after a uh, May figure of 0.6%. So you can construct on every day's data a bull case and a bear case. What that means for the Federal Reserve probably means they're just going to go with 25 and then have a pause again. I think that's what you lot are looking for out there as well. Let's take a look at the US futures and where they're trading after yesterday's action. Um, We are looking mildly positive at the start of this very early start. And let's be honest about it, the liquidity is not enormous at this early stage uh, on those US markets as well. But what I want to do now is get another view on this one as well. And Ernst Nacker is head of research at Shard Capital. Ernst, there's a lot going on. I've, I've brought a, a few of those ideas together there as well. What, what are your thoughts about where the market goes next and where the leadership is? Good day to you, sir. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be on the show. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very tough decision. You know, if you're, if you're a macro strategist here, like you mentioned, all the leading indicators are pointing down. We've had the fastest hiking cycle in, in history alongside uh, uh, an energy shock. So, so if you're a macro strategist, you can, you can see almost nothing but a recession on the right. On, on the horizon. At, at the same time, you also mentioned that the consumer is, is looking strong here. I think that the people have underestimated the size of the fiscal package during the COVID lockdowns and the time it'll take for that, for that excess or accumulated deposits to, to run off. So the consumer looks in a good shape, the job markets are in a good shape, but the, the macro indicators are not very attractive. In, t- in terms of what data I need to be looking at, that our viewers need to be mm. looking at as well. I, I mentioned a few of the pieces of data this week as well. And, and again, the strength of the jobless figures um, or, or job creation figures, I should say, the lack of strength mm. in joblessness, the, the, the really lovely inflation data we've had in the last couple of weeks as well. Compared with some of those manufacturing indicators, leading indicators, uh, industrial mm. Mm. Uh, figures as well, where should I be looking, Ants, for actually what matters next in terms of A, policymaking and B, investment decision making? I think you mentioned a couple of you know, important points there. The reality is 
the job markets remain really strong, but the job markets, labor markets are a lagging indicator. I think people need to be more focused on, on, on leading indicators where we are in, in, in this part of the cycle. The, the, the inflation coming down is in, in part a result of uh, declining demand. So, so people, you know, the second half of this year will be a lot tougher than the first half of the year for, for the consumer. With, with, with that in mind, I do think people need to be very vigilant on, um, you know, the value of the assets they're investing in and the potential for mean reversion in, in, in the shorter term. So, so tougher, tougher second half. Um, it, it won't be, you know, what, what the first half of, of the year was. And, and people need to be focused on the quality of the assets. Ernst, hi, good morning. Can we joining in this conversation? I just want to stretch Steve's uh, point forward. What is the data that you think would be top of mind for the Fed here on? Because it's so confusing. I'm completely with Steve on that. Uh, it just seems like the equity markets are signaling positivity. You, you have the S&P 500 just short 250 points of record highs. And then you have, of course, mm, yes. uh, a stubbornly steep, uh, a steep uh, yield curve uh, at 100 basis points between the two-year, 10-year spread. And so what is it that you yes. think would govern the Fed from here? Look, the, uh, the, the, Fed, the Fed's path seems to be set in stone. They've mentioned the pain ahead, um, you know, a, a while back. Um, Mr. Powell mentioned that, you know, further hikes will probably be necessary later in the year. And, and all those um, factors point to me, you know, alongside a strong labor market, points me to think that, you know, they might hike more in, 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 the, next, in the next meeting. However, unintuitively, I believe that, that the best they can do from a CPI perspective is actually to cut rates because that'll, that'll ease the pressure on landlords to push up these rents or just the perception that they need to push up rents. And that's really the only component that is keeping CPI high. So, so, so I'm, I, I, I definitely don't think that the Fed needs to, needs to hike. But like I say, it does seem like their the, the path is, is relatively set in stone and focused on, on the strength of the labor market, right? Uh, the 10-year the yield is reflecting that long-term uh, people are expecting rates to come down, that higher rates are not sustainable yes. from these levels. Uh, but the question really is on the inflation picture. You know, what's happened this week with the soft commodities, with the wheat market, uh, disruption yeah. in food supply chains, also nat gas prices, nat gas futures, is indicating that maybe... On the supply side of things, uh, things could come back to haunt the Fed. Supply side inflation, that is, those pressures. Yeah, I, I think that's a little bit sh short term. I, I don't think um, the shocks we've seen in the system will be significant enough. Look, you know, there, there's, there, there's major factors that, that has uh, inflationary pressures building. Um, El Nino, you know, the, the, the weather, the climate, the, the transition to net zero. The, the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, all of those, deglobalization, all of those factors um, have in inflation characteristics in, embedded in them. However, the deflationary forces of um, just base effects, uh, the, the enormous amount of debt, which is a, a big concern for us in, in the US, um, and, and you know, technological, technological advantage, I believe all of those deflationary forces will offset the, 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 the pressures from, from, from higher inflation and means that the Fed doesn't really need to hike. And looking at some of the longer term trends, I notice you've picked out one of the old chestnuts and I'm not quite sure how I feel about this one either. De-dollarization and how this might impact asset allocation decisions. I appreciate that uh, Remimbi type trade has picked up 
significantly since the start of sanctions on Russia as well. And they're looking for a, a larger share in the, the use of it as opposed to a dollar. But we're nowhere near uh, the end of dollar dominance in global trade, or are we? I, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a lot of a lot of um, you know pundits out in the market highlighting this this trend of de-dollarization and the, the need for an alternative. I think there are there are sufficient global participants or foreign investors that would um, happily move on to a different uh, a different standard. But the reality is the dollar standard is so set in stone, and you know moving away. The, the, the ability for, for participants to move away is, is just, it's, it's non-existent today. You need, you need a, a new system that needs to be built. That, that'll take years. And more than that, you need to, to build trust in that new system. And getting that trust takes, takes years, right? So, so I agree with you. De-dollarization is, um, is, is, is not near. In the longer term, potentially, but in, in the short term, I think there's actually upside to the dollar here. Indeed, and we're seeing the dollar index actually, uh, the DEXI bounce back from its 15-month lows. Uh, wonder what happens uh, from here for uh, the dollar index largely. But on, on that point, on the point of de-dollarization, as a, a preferred reserve currency of the world, obviously dollar, the dollar will have dominance for time to come. But do you think that the de-dollarization argument would extend to uh, the trade business, the global trade business? Because there we are seeing the likes of the yuan, the Russian ruble, the Indian rupee, some of the South South Asian and rather the Asian currencies also finding some way. I'm I'm sure we'll have more and more bilateral agreements, um, which which will include, um, you know, uh, uh, I guess a negotiation on which on which currency those those trade happens or the terms of those trades. However, the, you know, just going back to the comment on trust, you need to have trust between the two parties um, that, you know, and, and the system that that happens in. And, and that is just not there. As much as we want to believe that, you know, um, the one is, is an alternative uh, or, you know, there is a potential new currency that, that uh, people can, can trade on, um, the, the trust in, in each other's currencies and the system, I, I just don't, don't think it's there yet. Ernst, lovely to speak to you today and uh, some very thoughtful conversations as well. Ernst Nacher, who is the head of research at Shard Capital. Good to see you, sir. Thank you for joining us. Um, Tambu, look, we haven't had a proper chat yet. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, I am fascinated. And I feeling think... the Friday feeling. What does that mean? You, do, well, you want to go home already? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Time for a yes. beer? I mean, well, you've adopted the English working habits already. I don't already. have alcohol. I'm, I'm a detotaler. Well, but yes, but well, just well, ready well, for the weekend. Uh, and so should I be. Um, but, but the fact of the matter is, most people in the UK don't work on a Friday now anyway. They call it work from home. But anyway, that's another <laughs> issue. Uh, in, in, I'm really interested. When I get smart colleagues coming in from different parts of the world, I always yeah. want to tap on their knowledge as well. And one thing I'm interested in you is actually turning that last couple of questions with Ernst on, on yourself, actually, because you speak to so many important people, businessmen and women in Asia as well. Yeah. What I want to know from you is, are they talking seriously about de-dollarization or is it just literally one of those things, oh yeah, it's happening, but it's happening so tinily on, on the fringes that actually the dollar's dominance is not challenged, or is it? I think a de-dollar trade has been challenged 
uh, in, in the last couple of months, if you notice, you know, it, whether it's the Chinese yuan, whether it's the Indian rupee, I think it started with non-dollar oil trade, Steve, uh, you right. know, with, with the, the Russian ruble, rupee trade uh, gaining momentum. And of course, China also stepping in, uh, you know, talking about contracts with Saudi Arabia in yuan terms. So I think in fits and starts, like you said, on the margin, things are changing. But on the reserve side, when people talk about de-dollarization, I'm a bit surprised because, you know, if you just look at the data over the last 20 years, from 2000 to 2020, uh, the dollar's proportion or as a, as a percentage of the overall global reserves has come down from 70% to 60%. That's a 10% move over 20 years. Yeah. Right? So I, I, I feel like the whole argument is a bit far-fetched, but in terms of uh, non-dollar trade, de-dollar oil trade, yeah, there could be some legs to that argument. Yeah, and I look at it from a different point of view. I don't know if the producers can get it. Oh, you've got it all right. <laughs> Did you know I was going to ask? Uh, I just look at the dollar index. Wow, that's spooky. They knew that. Uh, I look at the dollar index on a, a longer term basis. And yeah. we're at the same level we were trading in 2017. We're actually at the same level we were trading in 2004. Same level as about 1998. Same level in 1987. That's and roughly okay. the same level as we were trading in 1973. So I've just picked out those points because they're exactly the same level on the yep. chart as well. So for all all the talk of the woe of the dollar and how oh it's going to be on a long-term thematic decline and structural decline. Funnily enough, we still seem to be hitting the midpoint of history. And most analysts tell me, right, good economy, bad economy, you buy the dollar. Yeah. I mean, think about it, right? Yeah. It's, it's also a safety hedge. It's also a safety trade. It's, on the other hand, uh, seen as... Uh, as a yield currency, if, uh, if the rates the, the go up. Good old-fashioned carry trade. Yeah, we'll exactly. We'll talk about the Japanese currency in a few moments. Exactly. Now. The dollar yen has I come back in a big we'll way. some corporates. We should do that. Okay, talking about earnings then, uh, Johnson & Johnson lifted its guidance uh, for the full year as it posted a beat on second quarter earnings and revenue. The pharma giant said it expects it to see an uptick in sales medical devices from its medtech business amid a rebound in non-urgent surgeries, uh, which had been deferred in since actually the COVID pandemic. Shares closed 6% higher in Thursday's trade. Speaking to our colleagues, uh, stateside CFO Joseph Walk said he's increasingly bullish on the company's outlook. We started the year beating expectations with our guidance, but we had a qualifier around it of being responsibly cautious. Uh, right now, the qualifiers are off. We're humming across all of our business lines, 7.5% operational growth in the quarter, earnings growth of better than 8%. Shares in Enforcers are down sharply after the Indian IT giant posted disappointing first quarter profits and slashed its revenue growth forecast in half. The group says it now expects growth to come in at between 1.5% down from up to 7% previously. It pinned the slump on businesses curtailing their outlay on the back of recession fears and inflationary pressures, which is why the stock, as you can see on your screens, is down nearly 8%. You know I was talking about? Swallows leadership and confusion at the start of the market. I, 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 the, the, the show. I, I'm thinking about 
whether we don't have one swallow making a summer now, and we actually have quite a few swallows. I, the reason I mention that is you've got emphasis there you were just yeah. talking about. We've got Nokia and Ericsson both yesterday talking about, on the last couple of days, uh, about slowdown in orders, mostly from high margin American customers. Now you've got this company, uh, SAP. The US listed shares closed more than 6% in the red after the German software group missed second quarter earnings forecast and pared back its cloud revenue guidance. The group also said it will strengthen its push into generative AI after announcing this week that it would invest into three major artificial intelligence companies. Speaking on CNBC's Mad Money, uh, the CEO Christian Klein said momentum in cloud is accelerating despite the latest figures falling short of expectations. This quarter, we actually delivered really good numbers. I mean, when you look at it, our current cloud backlog is now up to 25% to 11.5 billion, which actually sets a very strong foundation for future cloud revenue growth. Cloud revenue is growing 22% above our peers and operating profit is up 28%, which is very important to show that we are accelerating our cloud growth momentum uh, and that's, I think this is stunningly important, what we're seeing from a lot of technology companies now as well. Uh, and they need to know what the slowdown is all about at SAP. So you're going to inform us. Well, actually, what, he, what they were saying yesterday, that, that that slowdown in cloud revenues is down to fewer public sector customers who, because of the geopolitical tension, actually do shift or stay with the traditional um, services uh, SAP is providing as well. So I guess it's more like a, a, probably a bit of a stalling in the movement towards moving the business into cloud. And that's what Christian Klein was also saying on Mad Money, that the outlook for the second half of the year actually looks very good and they are looking into robust growth in that area. I think it's quite interesting that they are, they have been quite cautious um, in their optimism about AI in the past, but that has changed now completely. So now they are pledging to invest 1 billion US dollar in um, AI-based startup, technology startups uh, through their Sapphire Venture, which is more or less like their VC capital fund. Um, and they're also saying that this is the future. It's a watershed moment we're currently in. It's comparable to the internet and also to the cloud computing issue. Um, so it's extremely important and also AI-based solutions are uh, also very much in demand from their CAS customers and they're only offering those actually with their cloud product. So they're still clearly on in uh, they're clearly on mission when it's uh, when it comes to the trajectory of the business. But this is like a small setback. But we also have to look at the share price development. The shares are up by more than 30% year to date and the valuation is very high. It is a PE of 63, which is far higher than, than the ones of Oracle and Microsoft. So I guess there was a lot of fantasy in the shares already yeah absolutely huge PE there um just just checking hang on you're in frankfurt aren't you so that's 546 kilometers away from berlin yes i just want to make sure you're safe <laughs> do you know where i'm going with this <laughs> yes, i'm very safe the lion is around i know <laughs> <laughs> it's the big headline in the uk this morning the fact that yeah, there's a lioness loose it's, it's still interesting but <laughs> 
where this lion is actually coming from. Apparently, it's common in Germany. It's easier to have a lion at home than actually a dog, which is uh, <laughs> which is classified as being a fighting dog. Honestly, it's not a joke. <laughs> no, 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 it's a very serious story. I mean, I mean, some might say every time there's an ECB meeting in Frankfurt, we have our own tigress on the loose, her name Danetta Weisbacki. Um, <laughs> 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 oh, yeah, we went somewhere else with that one. Uh, brilliant. Thank you very much indeed for that, Netta. Yes, a, a tigress, a, a lioness is on the loose in, in a Berlin forest. Mm. And uh, apparently this is no joke. Easier to this have a lioness than a dog Stay in uh, Frankfurt. Stay indoors. Okay, right, coming up on the show. Uh, this morning, election fever, Rishi Sunak's uh, Tory party uh, licking its wounds but avoiding a total wipeout, only by about 500 votes, uh, in the three UK by-elections while Spain uh, prepares for its national vote this weekend. Uh, later, it's set to be one of the biggest box office blowouts in years with the double release of Barbie and Oppenheimer. Could you get more juxtaposed companies? Uh, Barbenheimer. Uh, we'll discuss that and which of the two you should see first. <laughs> okay. Uh, and while the uh, Swiss exchange six uh, may have lost Credit Suisse, it's gained a number of Chinese company listings. We'll discuss all that with the six group CEO, Jos Dieselhoff, as the group releases its earnings for the quarter. That's uh, first on CNBC, coming up at 8.30 CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Voters in Spain are set to decide on the next government in the country's general election this Sunday ahead of the vote. A number of European left-wing leaders expressed support for the incumbent Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez. His Socialist Party, however, is set for a tough battle this weekend against their main rivals, the Conservative Popular Party, PP, as well as the far-right Vox. Our very own Charlotte Reed is on the ground, joins us with the latest on what we can expect. Charlotte. Well, good morning, Tanvir. Well, this is the very final day of this electoral campaign before the vote on Sunday. And look, it's looking very difficult for Pedro Sanchez, the current prime minister uh, from the Socialist Party, to potentially stay in power. But look, he's a risk taker. He, he's taken this big political gamble. He's done similar things before. Look, he came to power after putting on the table a vote of no confidence against his predecessor. That was the first time ever that a vote of no confidence was uh, successful in modern Spain. And that's how he became prime minister and then in 2019 they had to hold two elections here in Spain because they did manage to get a majority in April vote so they had to do a second one in November and then finally there was a coalition put together between Pedro Sanchez and the far-left bloc Unidas Podemos another first ever coalition in Spain because we see certainly this big fragmentation here in Spanish politics that we've seen in other countries in Europe and we see the emergence of the far-right and the far-left certainly coming on the scene and when he took off 
office in January 2020. Of course, we're just weeks away from COVID hitting very hard Spain as well. So you had a tough time. And despite all this, well, look at the economy, for example. Uh, that was some of the key issues when he became prime minister. The economy is doing well in Spain. It grew 5.5% last year. It will grow 2.3%. This year, inflation is below 2%. Unemployment is lower. It's still high, of course, uh, compared to other European countries. But it is, it's at 13%. But in, on, in, terms of, in Spanish terms, it is actually low. So a lot of these things on paper look good for Pedro Sanchez. And despite all that, it looks like it's, he's not in the lead in the polls. It's his opponent, the centre-right candidate, Mr. Feijó, that seems to be in the lead at the moment. But looking at the latest polls, it also looks unlikely that Mr. Feijó might be able to reach the absolute majority. He relies on the far-right party of Vox that suddenly came on the scene quite late in Spain compared to other European countries. So he would rely. We've seen in the regional election in May that the Partido Popular, the centre-right, had to make a lot of alliance with the far-right. And we've seen some of these regions, the rolling back of some green policies in particular on some social issues as well, some controversies around LGBTQ uh, issues, uh, Vox in the manifesto calling for, for the ban of abortion, for example. So this campaign has very much moved to the, to the extreme to a certain extent. So it would be interesting to see how things go. Now, another interesting element in this campaign, of course, it's a summer election. It's the first time ever that we have a summer election. We've just had a heat wave in Spain. It's calming down a little bit. We might get hotter at the weekend. A record number of people have asked for a postal vote to more than 2.5 million people have asked for, for a postal vote. Some have been delayed, haven't received their papers yet, so they've extended the time that people can return their papers. So all this comes into play, uh, and now we're coming this crucial moment. Pedro Sanchez himself will be doing his final rally here in the suburbs of Madrid. Mr. Feijó will be doing his rally in the south of Spain, when his party has some strongholds, and in the north of the country where he has been president in the past. So they're both going, talking to their base, try to get these centuries votes as well. At the same time, what is seen, this fragmentation on the Spanish scene. So very final campaign before the vote on Sunday, but we might well see a change of government here in Spain. Guys. Super duper workout in Spain. Thank you very much indeed for that, Charlotte. The UK's governing Conservative Party, meanwhile, has suffered a blow in parliamentary by-elections, with opposition parties overturning two huge majorities in a crucial test for Rishi Sunak's leadership ahead of a general election likely next year. This despite holding on in the seat of former Prime Minister Boris Johnson by just under 500 votes. Uh, Arabile joins us with more. Uh, just how bad was it for Sunak and the Tories, Arabile? Oh, it, it certainly was bad, uh, Steve. I mean, a lot of these turns have actually been ones that we haven't seen at least since the Second World War, in fact, right? These elections were seen as a, a big test, as you pointed out, for the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, with seats in three different parts of the UK, perhaps giving that litmus test, right? A look at what could be in store for the Conservatives in next year's general election. Now, while the Conservatives did hold on to Boris Johnson's uh, former seat out in London, where there has been a focus on local issues, there will be a concern, however, by the swings against them. Let's take a look at that, right? They had won the seat by 15% majority back in 2019. That's fallen away then to 1.6%. That is a big fall for them, and it does give bad news into the next general election possibly happening next year. The Conservatives will need to hold on uh, to close fought seats then, particularly in the north of England. So if we look at Somerton and from, I mean, that has also swung, right? From 29.6% for the Conservative Party, that swung to the Liberal Democrats, the Lib Dems, then 28.4% win for them, and they'll need to. The Conservatives will need to keep their majority next year in order 
uh, to see this. Today, they have, however, lost uh, former safe seats uh, to the biggest by-election majority Labour has overturned since the Second World War. That is Selbian from. This one will be very interesting, uh, really, how up north they're now losing it. Uh, 35.7% for Conservatives back in 2019, Labour now winning it by 11.6%. This is all happening while also facing pressure from those centrist Liberal Democrats, of course, in Southern Strongholds, as we've pointed out, losing by another big majority. So what happens from here then? I mean, the polling for uh, going into next year is going to be one that is going to hurt to the Conservatives. Again, as you can tell, we still have Labour leading uh, when it comes to the general polling right now, with Conservatives only at 26%. The Lib Dems catching up, however, pretty much stagnant at around 11%. But Rishi Sunak has been uh, perhaps mooted to put in a reshuffle when it comes to his government, either now, in this week, perhaps even today, or perhaps next week sometime as well. Any of that could certainly happen because, unfortunately, he's been asked to make quite a few changes, a reshuffle that, uh, where he's had control of the party, but now has had to face the chances that people who want uh, better policies or different policies, should I say, more tax cuts perhaps being put in place are the key questions. More right-wing members wanting him perhaps to uh, be tough on immigration and other social issues. So all of those are going to play a big part in whether Rishi Sunak is able to uh, take hold of uh, government again getting into next year's general election. A lot has been said by this by-election, and it does paint a clearer picture for the Conservative yeah, Party. A very tough night for the Conservatives. I guess they have to thank Sadiq Khan, the London Mayor, uh, for holding on to Uxbridge. But that's a bit of an inspired baseball story. We'll, we'll go to that later, maybe. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.